Thank you very much for having me. It's really nice to be with you. And um, as an old man as well, thanks. <laughs> thanks ever so much. Shall we pray? Father, it's a joy to be together, to meet as your people. Please would you speak your living word to us. And would you do wonderful and deep and lasting things through it in our lives and in our lives together. Uh, we pray. Amen. 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 I'd love to know you're keeping Bibles open, please, so you can keep an eye on uh, what I'm saying. It said we're the most restless generation ever, and I take it that includes those of us who are Christians. So we're always craving something new or something better. We've got butterfly brains that flip from one thing to the next, and then with technology, we're always scrolling or flicking or swiping or skim reading, uh, seeking the hit, seeking likes seeking something to make our lives a bit less ordinary. And you might be feeling that restlessness today. Come on, Al, get on with the intro. Come on, we've got stuff to do. Then we turn to the Bible and we find God calls us constantly back to something that for many of us is incredibly familiar, very well known. Maybe it's become ordinary to you and it's the message of Jesus and his cross. And some of you may want to say, oh, come on, I know that, come on, give us something new. And yet we're constantly brought back and called to slow down and pause and dwell there and dwell there long enough to be changed by it. Some of you might know the old Victorian hymn that goes, tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, Jesus and his love. And so it goes on, tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly so that I may take it in. God's wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. And what we're going to do today with the passage before us is slow down and stop and think about Jesus and his death and do that again. And as we do so, my hope and prayer is we'll find the remedy for our restlessness. Today will be a bit like an eyesight test. I didn't know when you had yours last tested. I have got to that middle-aged stage of life. Last three years, I need glasses to read, and oh, it's all, I keep getting called back for more tests. But today's a bit like that, spiritually speaking. And an eyesight test, whether you've been a Christian for years or whether you're just looking into Christian faith or working it out. Because when we open Mark's Gospel, we find there's a background issue all the way through of spiritual blindness. And I wonder whether you've noticed this. You've had a few weeks now in Mark's Gospel, haven't you? And we're constantly told phrases like, oh, the disciples fail to see, or they don't get who Jesus is. And Jesus has to say to them, do you still not see? In the same way, we need to see clearly, spiritually, see who Jesus really is. And we'll see it's a must, it really is a must, if we're to know God and eternal life. It's a must if we're to grow uh, in Christ and make progress with him. So let me just show you two essentials that we must see here. The first is to see Jesus as he truly is. So it's a lesson on his identity. So I hope you've got a Bible still open, and you'll see down there in verse 27. We read, Jesus and his... And Jesus and the disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a place outside Israel to the east. 
and we just need to know a little that will help us. It's a place linked with emperor worship, and it also had shrines to lots of gods. So emperor worship, pluralism, can't say the word, and worst of all, Caesarea promoted immorality, sexual immorality, in the name of religion. And here in this setting, in this liberal supermarket of gods, Jesus asks, who do people say I am? Oh, brilliant. It's a nice, easy opening question, isn't it? Who do people say I am? Yeah, great, go with that. So the disciples jump in and reply. See verse 28. But with some amazing possibilities. That Jesus is John the Baptist, or a dead prophet come to life. And that would have been incredible in itself, wouldn't it? Just imagine that. If Jesus said, yes, I'm actually Isaiah, um, Elijah of old. It's actually, it's actually me, I'm him, resurrected. But Jesus' silence implies they're not yet seeing properly. So he's got another question to ask. Do you see verse 29? Well, what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? <laughs> so now we start to shift in our uh, seats a bit because we know about loaded questions. It's like a question a barrister might ask, leading somewhere. But then, bless him, Peter jumps in. Do you see that? Verse 29. Peter answered, you are the Messiah or Christ. Now, please get the significance of this moment. This is the first time since his birth in Bethlehem that Jesus has been truly recognised. It's almost like you can hear the crowd cheering in the background. Christ or Messiah means anointed one. And over the centuries before, God had promised through his Old Testament prophets an anointed one, a Christ or Messiah, who'd rule as king forever. And down the years, that promise gathered depth. So the promise was the anointed one would rescue God's people. The anointed one would in fact be God himself coming. God the Son. And you see, here it is. Peter, as if with jaw dropping open, says, It's you. It's you, Jesus. You're the Christ. Do you see, against the backdrop of any and every little God, Peter says to the man standing in front of him, you are the unique divine king. You're Lord of everything and everyone. You are king, creator, sustainer, saviour, redeemer, judge, heir. You are God and man. Do you see, here's Peter seeing clearly. So Peter's realising, saying to Jesus, Jesus, you're not just another prophet, another religious teacher, another good man. You're not just one of many. You are God. You are God come down in the person of his son. See what Peter's realising? The one in front of them is the one by whom the world was made. He's the one for whom the world was made. He's the one through whom people are remade for God. And Jesus' reply confirms Peter has got it spot on. But let's just stay with it a bit longer, because I take it Jesus' loaded question is pointed at us too. Who do you say he is? So Jesus is asking us, asking you. In our culture of many gods and tolerance of certain things and intolerance of certainty, 
And Jesus is asking us, it's not me, Jesus is asking you, who do you say he is? What about you? Are you seeing straight? And we might want to say, well, I like to think of Jesus as, um, well, it's like, well, it's kind of like this, or... And uh, maybe you want to kind of protest and say, well, I, c- I can't believe Jesus is like this. I've always thought of him as instead like this. But we can't get away from Jesus' words. Because he says this is the only commendation to see him as he truly is. So we can't say, oh, Jesus, oh, well, I think he was just a good prophet. Oh, yeah, Jesus is, well, of course, he's said some, he's said some great things. I, you know, take his values. We can't just say Jesus is just one way among many. We have to say what Jesus says here. He is God himself come down to rescue and rule. And I take it, for all of us here who call ourselves believers in him, this is how you see him. As Lord and Saviour and King. Your Lord and Saviour and King. And as we do so, so the New Testament calls us to fix our eyes on him. And not look elsewhere for salvation or satisfaction or strength and when we keep our eyes on him what do we find well we find we remember he's the head of the church he's a very good shepherd he's sovereign over our lives and deaths he saves us from sin and despair he shares himself with us by his spirit he gathers and builds his people by his word He is everything we ultimately need and want. So we need to keep our eyes on him. I guess one of the dangers over time is that drift, isn't it? So it's worth just checking ourselves. Do I see Jesus now as I have done before? Those times when I saw him so clearly, he was all I talked about. I had to share him with others. And actually just to watch ourselves, that, to watch what we've become, perhaps. Maybe Jesus isn't quite so front and centre or central to our lives. He's now something else to fit into the jigsaw of life and children and family and, and so on. But you see, it, it ought to be the case that when we see who is standing there in front of the disciples, we too, like Peter, are gobsmacked and humbled and say, Oh my word, look who it is. Look who's come. Look who kept his promise. Then do you get the surprise that follows? Verse 30, do you see that? Verse 30 reads, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And I take it we ought to say, what? What? How could it say that? Jesus, Peter has just clocked who you are. What do you mean, keep quiet? This is what the world needs to know. How can you say? Don't tell anyone. I want us to notice the miracle that just happens uh, before this incident. You see that? The healing of the uh, blind man. It's the only miracle, I think I'm right in saying this, that Jesus performs in two stages. Why is that? Why is that? I take it Jesus could have healed that blind man in uh, one touch or word but he chooses to do it in two stages. Deliberately so, because it's like a mirror to the disciples' understanding. So let me 
kind of talk you through it. So when Peter declares, you are the Messiah, it's like stage one. He sees, but not fully clearly. So there's something else he needs to see. And the second stage is, Peter and the others need to know about Jesus' mission. So before they can broadcast who Jesus is, they need to see clearly what he came to do. See that two stage? They've seen who he is, now they need to see what he came to do. So there's the second essential for us. We need to see the way Jesus must go. So would you look down at verse 31? He then, there's a little word that gives us, the, gives us the clue here. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. I take it we're used to seeing signs, sayings every day with the word must in them. See them all the time. Breakages must be paid for. Entrance must be kept clear. Visitors must report to reception. Or my favourite one, the one by the escalator, push chairs must be carried. At which point someone said, oh no, I haven't got a push chair. <laughs> must, must. Did you notice here? Twice Jesus uses the word must, must. Jesus must die and must be raised. What an extraordinary prediction in itself. Must die and must be raised. But he really had to, he had to, because it was God's plan foretold in the scriptures. If Jesus was to bring us to God the Father, to bring forgiveness of sins, he had to die and suffer the penalty for sin. He really had to. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So if Jesus was to rescue us from our sins, he had to die our death for us. Jesus would put it like this later in chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 45. He says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It had to be this way. Out of his incredible love, God would give himself in his Son to a cross. But I still think we're meant to get the, get the shock of it. It's the Son of Man who had to die. And there's that Old Testament title which Jesus used of himself that was so powerful. That Old Testament title describing one with authority to rule the nations. And it's him, the Son of Man, who would die and be raised. Do you see what we're being told? The Lord of the world would lay down his life for the world. Do you see? Our God is one who gives himself to be crucified in our place. The Son of Man must die. Jesus says it's a must. <laughs> now we find the news didn't go down well. So let's look down again, follow it, and, um, in verse 32. Verse, verse 32. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You do not have in mind, so I think some versions have it, the things of God, but the things of men. <laughs> I take it we can sympathise with Peter, 
Here's Peter, the guy who mostly seems to open his mouth only to put his foot in it. But we can sympathise with him, can't we? Peter's saying, Jesus, you're the unique divine king, God on earth. Why are you talking about dying? You're meant to ride into Jerusalem, throw out the Romans. Don't talk about dying. That's not what a king does. But Jesus has to tell him he's not seeing clearly. And he uses really strong words, doesn't he? Get behind me, Satan. He's not saying Peter is the devil, but he is seeing in Peter's words the devil's temptation. The temptation to abandon his rescue mission and avoid the cross. So he has to say he has to die and be raised. And did you notice that little touch we're told? Jesus looked at the disciples and then rebuked Peter. That's interesting, isn't it? Jesus is so concerned that his people, his disciples, his church, aren't confused or misled. He has to rebuke Peter and tell him he has to die. Jesus has to die and be raised. So I take it, in the run-up to Easter, this is just what we need to hear again. If we, to be, if we are to be restored to a right standing and friendship with God the Father, Jesus has to die and pay for our sin. And the great news is he's done that. He has done that, proved by his resurrection. So we remember again, we can't get ourselves to God by trying to live a good or religious life. Or by ranking ourselves as better than uh, the person next to us. Or by crossing our fingers and wishing God would overlook stuff. Or we can't boost our chances by uh, busting a gut serving in a new church. But the brilliant thing is, the true thing is, God the Father brings us to himself through the cross of his Son. So you're seeing again, do you see the God we have? Do you see the Christ we have? And this is saying, there's no Christianity without the cross of Christ. Sometimes uh, Christians say to their non-Christian friends something like this, God loves you, and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I want to agree, because there's so much that's kind of good there. But there's something so misleading as well. Instead, mustn't we say, given what we've just read, God loves you and gave his son for your life. It's all about him. See, he's the focus. The, the cross is the way to the Father. And his wonderful plan is that we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. As Jesus says next, which I think you'll come on to next week. But do you see, today, given what we've read, it's time to see straight. Time to see Jesus as the one with a crown and a cross. And when we see him like this, what a joy, what a relief. The brilliant thing is, then we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to try and justify ourselves to him, but just come to him empty-handed. Just come to him and say, risen Lord Jesus Christ, son of man, the one now at the Father's side, and say to him, thank you that what you did, you did for us, and you did for me. And so we find our rest in him. Shall I pray as we close? Let's pray. 
Therefore, we praise you, God our Father, for the God that you are. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for being the sacrifice that we need. And I pray today you would enable us to find our rest in him and then willingly to lay down our lives for him who laid down his life for us. And I pray, please, that you'd make these truths, these matters of, of Jesus' identity and mission more real to us this Easter and more lasting. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.